0: Hello and welcome back to Banjo, Strings, and Drinking Gourds: How America Culture Came to Be, the podcast of the Frontier Culture Museum of Virginia. I'm Alex.
1: And I'm Rachel. Today we're discussing the history of wordplay. Most people like a good pun now and then, note the word good there, but how has wordplay changed and developed through time? How has slang made a difference in identity and language development? We're going to delve into that in this episode.
0: One would think that the history of punning would go back fairly far, But according to The Pun Also Rises by John Pollock, former speechwriter and world champion punster, yes, there is a world championship for puns, punning is more recent, whether that's because with the advent of the print and press, we have more access to a wider array of authors who are writing more publicly accessible works, think Shakespeare, or that punning was initially a verbal art only, is difficult to say. The actual word pun can only be traced back to the 17th century but it may certainly have been called something else earlier. Punning and wordplay was a venerable way of showing one's wit in ancient Greece. One of the most well-known is Odysseus' trick on Polythemius by saying he is nobody, and therefore eliminating any help from the other giants. After all, Polythemus shouted that nobody was trying to kill him, and therefore everyone else thought things were fine. Wildly, Odysseus indeed of course, the majority of Greek wordplay, especially homeric puns, don't make any sense in translation, probably why scholars tend to ignore the ancient texts as puns, but in the original Greek, were pretty darn witty.
1: Language is often a barrier to understanding wordplay. The vast, sweeping cultural and political shifts in the medieval period may have negatively impacted the pun, While various waves of invaders were taking over the British Isles, they brought their languages with them until there was a vast array of tongues being used, including French, Latin, and scholarly Greek, to mingle with the mishmash of Welsh, Old German, Norse, Gaelic, and what-have-you spoken as English. What languages one spoke often depended on class, but also could be related to geographic location and dialectical form. This was a mess of a language melting pot, making it rather difficult for wordplay that works in one language to transfer to another. But by the 17th century, there was a definitive English language, one that was stable enough and had borrowed enough homonyms, words that sound the same but mean different things, from the glut of languages in the early and middle medieval periods to allow clever writers a chance to play.
0: Also helping the pun to reclaim its former status as a mark of cleverness was the relaxing of the strict control from the parliamentarians. After the restoration of the monarchy and the crowning of Charles, King Charles II, there comes a tale from court where the king asked his jester to give him a pun. Charles Kilgrew, the jester, was also a playwright and had been bragging that he could pun on any subject. The desire pun came back that the king is no subject, which was both quick-witted and fairly literally true. Many scholars point to this period as the true renaissance of the pun. Not only were plays and pamphlets rife with puns and sly wordplay, but there was even a joke book published in 1677.
1: That joke book was accurately named Coffee House Jests. As we discussed in the previous episode, this was also the period that saw the rise of coffee houses, and their prominence in social circles for intellectual and philosophical debates. Just like today, the English have their beloved local pub, certain coffee houses became notorious for hosting specific sets of intellects. The most famous was Will's Coffee House, affectionately called Witt's Coffee House for the fast-flying words of its patrons who included John Dryden, Jonathan Swift, Sam Pepys, Alexander Pope, and others. Now, it seems these great minds all had differing opinions of the quality of conversation to be had at wits. In an entry for February 3rd, 1663, Samuel Pepys fondly writes, quote, In Covent Garden tonight, going to fetch home my wife, I stopped at the great Coffee House there, where I never was before, where Dryden the poet, I knew at Cambridge, and all the wits of the town, and Harris the player, and Mr. Hool of our college. And had I time then, or could at other times, it will be good coming thither, for there, I perceive, is very witty and pleasant discourse. But I could not tarry, and as it was late, they were all ready to go away." End quote. Swift, on the other hand, was rather more critical. In his seventeen eleven work, The Conduct of the Allies, he wrote, "It is the folly of too many to mistake the echo of a London coffee house for the voice of the kingdom." Of wits in particular, Swift wrote, Quote, the worst conversation I ever remember to have heard in my life was that at Will's Coffee House, where the wits, as they were called, used formerly to assemble. That is to say, five or six men who had writ plays, or at least prologues, or had share in a miscellany came thither and entertained one another with their trifling composures in so important an air as if they had been the noblest efforts of human nature, or that the fate of kingdoms depended on them. End quote. In the eighteenth century, the coffee house of choice for the connoisseurs of wordplay had switched to the Bedford. A noted journal at the time stated the place, quote, "...is every night crowded with men of parts. Almost everyone you meet is a polite scholar and a wit. Jokes and bon mots are echoed from box to box. Every branch of literature is critically examined, and the merit of every production of the press or performance of the theaters weighed and determined."
0: End quote. But what was the early 18th century? A period known for rationalism and scientific discovery. Reaction to the pun. Let's just say it was a debate. There was a lot of anti-pun sentiment strong enough that various writers actually wrote pamphlets specifically targeting the poor pun. The Earl of Shrewsbury wrote in 1709, quote, The very language of the court was punning, but tis now banished the town and all in good company. There are only some few footsteps of it in the country, and it seems at last confined to the nurseries of youth, as the chief entertainment of pedants and the pupils, end quote. Of course, these rational men of scientific men, with their serious take on puns, only had themselves to blame for becoming targets of promotional or satirical pamphlets about puns. Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift were, of course, quick off the mark to respond to the slightest cast of their favorite wordplay. In 1714, God's Revenge Against punning, Shrewin, The Miserable Fates of Persons Addicted to This Crying Sin in Court and Town, were most likely published by Alexander Pope and focused on how puns like the back death were spread as an infection and caused punners to be disfigured or otherwise maimed. Swift, never one to sit idle when he could be making fun, rebuttaled the early satirical pamphlet in 1716 in A Modest Defense of Punnin, or a complete answer to a scandalous and malicious paper called God's Revenge Against Punnin. The whole thing was a masterwork of wordplay in four languages. My favorite defensive pun, however, is the 1719 booklet by Thomas Sheridan, Swift's godsend, called Ars Punnitnika, Siwi Um The Art of Punning or the Flower of Languages in 79 Rules for the Further Improvement of Conversation and Help of Memory, a book I wish I had read when I was younger. He defined a pun as both a physical and moral concept. The moral definition of punin states, punin is a virtue that most effectually promotes the end of good fellowship. Some of the 79 rules for punning included the rule that it was always acceptable to interrupt any sort of conversation with a pun, and that the punster was required to be the first to laugh at his own wit. And I will say there is a lot of people on staff who follow that rule to today.
1: <clears throat> this is definitely one that you must take as satire if you take it as an actual manner book, you will not be a popular person. But, unfortunately for the poor pun, the end of the 18th century and the 19th century in England saw a rise in more rigidity in social classes and so-called polite behavior. Puns, especially those being derogatory towards others, were thought to be lowbrow and therefore not polite. The pun survived, however, because it was wordplay that insinuated a deeper meaning. It wasn't an outright insult that increasingly strict libel laws could have gone after. The pun depends on the meaning being deciphered by the audience rather than an outright statement of insult. And, given that it was allowable of sly insults, is it any wonder that puns flew fast and hard during the Continental Congress? The most famous pun of the time is, of course, Ben Franklin's We must all hang together, or assuredly we will all hang separately. Not that Franklin was in any way a neophyte of the pun or wordplay in general. He was a master of the art that revolutionaries and the new nation embraced far more than England. Even into the 1880s, magazines and publications praised the ingenuity and intelligence that was required for puns, stating that it was a mark of distinction that America was so rife with creative punsters. While perhaps, as Sam Johnson said, puns are the last refuge of the witless, the enduring nature of wordplay and sly subtle humor that invites you to get in on the joke speaks volumes.
0: Another related form of wordplay is the riddle. A riddle may seem like a simple logic problem, but the best riddles use subtle double meanings and English ambiguity to suggest a red heron. The word riddle even comes from Old English meaning to interrupt or guess. That's pretty accurate for how most people flail for an answer. But riddles like puns are a vestige of an earlier oral tradition of learning. They are much harder to figure out when you hear them rather than read them. But both forms of wordplay also make the jump to being written down and read. Recorded riddles are even older than puns, with the earliest written riddles being recorded in Samaria around 4,000 years ago. One Sumerian riddle is, quote, there is a house. One enters it blind and comes out seeing, end quote. What is it? The answer is a school. And when Rachel told me this, I did not get this one.
1: <laughs> That's not where I thought that one was going either. But riddles have also been used for millennia as literary devices to prove the mettle of the hero or to create an obstacle to a happy ending. The one that springs to mind is Sophocles' riddle The Sphinx gives to Oedipus in Oedipus Rex. What goes on four legs in the morning, on two legs at noon, and on three legs in the evening? The answer is, of course, a human from baby to elder.
0: The Exeter Book is the oldest known book of old English riddles and poems. Written around 970 AD, the book contains almost 100 poetic riddles. Given that a large portion of the poems recorded in the Exeter book were religious, one would think these riddles would also be a serious contemplative type of logic. Not true. No, these are definite, full of purposeful double entrants, meaning to lead the listener in one direction and having the answer be something else entirely. We'll give an example, but these are definitely not family friendly.
1: Or at least they lead you to believe that they aren't quite innocent. There's one, for example, that describes something that very much sounds like a part of male anatomy, but the answer is actually a key. There's another one that the answer is an onion, and boy does that one read bodily. Shakespeare used riddles, of course, either as a distraction from the plot or to further it. Macbeth's riddles issued from the witches are definitely driving the plot, since they essentially foreshadow the entire events of the play, if you can fathom the meaning of the riddles. The riddles on the three caskets in The Merchant of Venice are kind of the whole denouement of the plot. Hamlet and King Lear also include riddles.
0: This one is fascinating since it was written in the 17th century, originally recorded in 1730. The riddle is, As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Each wife had seven sacks. Each sack had seven cats. Each cat had seven kits. Kits, cats, sacks, and wives, how many were going to St. Ives? Sound familiar? This was the riddle used in Die Hard with a Vengeance that Samuel L. Jackson solves. The answer is One. Riddles tend to give you a lot of excess information just to distract from the important parts, so for that one, the focus on the speaker who is on the way to St. Aide's, not the rhyme and distractions.
1: One of the most famous battle of wits in popular culture is the riddle game between Bilbo Baggins and Gollum in The Hobbit. Not only does it end with Bilbo's winning question of, What have I got in my pockets? Leading eventually to Andy Serkis' off mimicked cry of, What has it got in its pockets?" But every first-time reader matches their wits on some of the most tricky riddles of the day. My personal favorite is Bill's offering 30 white horses on a red hill. First they champ, then they stamp, then they stand still. The answer is teeth. To cap off this section of the episode, Alex, what's the answer to the most famous of all riddles? Why is a raven like a writing desk?
0: Well, you told me this the other day, and I had no idea. Even though you're going to tell the answer right now, It still makes no sense.
1: (laughs) So this is, of course, the famous riddle in Alice in Wonderland written by Lewis Carroll. Lewis Carroll actually did answer the riddle in a preface to the 1896 edition of Alice in Wonderland. His answer was, because it can produce a few notes, although they are very flat. Insert chortle here. He must have written that in response to how many letters he received asking for the answer. It was quite the hot topic of the day.
0: a slightly different track, let's talk about slang. The word slang itself tends to be used derogatory by certain groups to discuss terminology used by others. This is pretty much the original intention of the word from the 19th century when newspaper used it to disapprove of cant speech used by London's lower and apparently criminal classes. The slang terms themselves are used by subcultures and they tend to disseminate as other groups hear them and start to use them. The terms are usually very temporary specific, with new words pushing out those of the previous generations. Obviously, some words linger, like cool or okay, but others come in and out of fashion. Okay, by the way, actually has a similar origin to some of our slang or text speak. In the early decades of the 19th century, a very familiar fad of misspelling words was sweeping through newspaper authors, and I can tell you I continue that tradition to today. The more things change, right... But one of these deliberate misspellings was Old Correct, a contemporary version of All Right. It was shortened to OK. Why? Well, same reason we have Let's Speak and Tech Speak, because we can. But it was actually the Van Buren Campaign of 1840 that helped send OK into permanent American lexicon. Van Buren was dubbed Old Kindlehook for the town he was born in and his followers joined so-called OK clubs, where they said they were all okay using the colloquial sense for a pun. But this was only the start of okay as an etymological battle. The further away from the original slang of the 1820s and 30s people got, the more they questioned where it came from. Not only have Van Buren supporters been considered the solitary originated point, but also other languages. Notably, the argument for Choctaw word okay. O-K-E-H, meaning it is so, was so prevalent that Woodrow Wilson actually improved documents by spelling out O-K-E-H and claiming it was the only true and correct spelling and that O-K, spelled O-K, was wrong. Good effort and attempting to avoid cultural operation, but not necessarily in this case.
1: Other fun and exciting words no longer exist in daily speech, with the exception of history nerds or pretentious lit students. Shakespeare, of course, invented all sorts of words, some we still use, and others we most definitely don't. Well, I say invent. Really, he was just the first to record words that were most likely in the public vernacular. After all, why use words in a play that your audience won't understand? But words like assassination, obscene, horrid, and monumental are all Shakespearean. So are phrases like, eat me out of house and home, or it's all Greek to me, That last one I love because it's a pun from the 17th century that is so easily used for many situations today. But alack and alas, see what I did there? Language moved swiftly, and many 17th century words dropped out of favor. We think that our modern English would be incomprehensible to many periods in the past, but each generation also thought that. In 1884, William Toon published A Glossary and Etymological Dictionary of Obsolete and Uncommon Words, Antiquated Phrases, and Proverbs Illustrative of early English literature comprising chiefly those not to be found in our ordinary dictionaries with historical notices of ancient custom. Now, as the title states, these are not words that were entirely out of use, but were considered outdated, like someone today saying groovy unironically. But there are recognizable words in there, like agog and aghast, or dank, quip, hocus-pocus, and newfangled, with meanings similar to our modern usage. This just goes to show that while language is always evolving, some things hold true. We have libraries to thank for that, given that books written in previous eras with different lingo keep otherwise archaic words fresh in the public consciousness.
0: So we hope you enjoyed Banjo's Drinks and Drinking Gourds. We bring you Historica episodes twice a month. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are in this area, be sure to check out the Frontier Culture Museum. April is chock full of events like Wool Week, where interpreters hand shear sheep and demonstrate fiber arts while doing puns. So come on down and see us. Thank you. Thank you.